Well, in the next three chapters to which we come in our Genesis study, which will be chapters 23 today, and then, Lord willing, 24 next week, or maybe two weeks. I don't know how long it'll take us to get through chapter 24. And then 25, we're going to find the events which close out the first generation of the Hebrew patriarchs. In Genesis chapter 23, the lesson we come to this morning, which you have already heard, I've entitled The Funeral Test, we're going to discuss the death of Sarah. And then in Genesis 24, we're going to come to the very beautiful account of the marriage of Isaac, who begins the second generation of the Hebrew patriarchs. And then in chapter 25, we're going to learn about the death of Abraham himself. So with this lesson this morning in this new year, we begin a three-chapter transition from the walk of faith of Abraham and Sarah to the walk of faith of Isaac and Rebekah. Now in our consideration of Genesis 23, we learn how a believer can maintain a godly testimony even in the midst of dealing with the death of a loved one. In this case, it was the death of his spouse. We will learn by way of Abraham's example as he dealt with the death of his lifetime partner, Sarah, that there is a time, yes, there is a time to express sorrow, but there is also then a time to show responsibility and not be so overcome with our grief that we as believers present a very poor testimony of our faith. By Abraham's example, we are going to learn how important the believer's testimony before the world is at the time of grief, because this is one of the most critical times in the believer's life for him or her to demonstrate the difference that his faith makes in his life, you know, when dealing with life's worst enemy, which is death itself. Now, in the four-division outline that we have for this lesson... 20 verses in chapter 23, we're going to first of all discuss a tribute to Sarah, just in verses 1 and the first part of verse 2, and then in the latter part of verse 2, we're going to consider the tears of Abraham. Next, in verses 3 to 9, we will talk about the great testimony of Abraham as he demonstrated godly integrity and responsibility in making all the necessary funeral arrangements for his departed wife. And then finally, in the biggest section, verses 10 to 20, we're going to look at a business transaction with Ephron in which Abraham actually uh, secured a final resting place for Sarah. Now, some people might wonder why there is a whole chapter given over to the manner in which Abraham purchased a burial place for Sarah. It seems like this is an event that could have just been stated in a few verses. So why do we have a whole chapter on this? And the reason for this is apparently because Sarah's death uh, provided Abraham with an excellent opportunity to demonstrate publicly the reality and the greatness of his faith in God and in God's promises. It is, as I said before, it's at the time of death, either a loved one's death or even our own impending deaths, that the believer is given one of the greatest opportunities to demonstrate the reality of his faith in God and in God's promises of salvation and an eternal abode in heaven. So that's what we'll be looking at, and that's where we're going. So let's start with verses 1 and the first part of verse 2 as we look at a tribute to Sarah. 
It says in Genesis 23, verse 1, And Sarah was an hundred and seven and twenty years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kerjath Arba. The same is Hebron in the land of Canaan. Stop there. We're told here that Sarah was how old when she died? She was 127 years old when she died. And that means that Abraham was how old? Somebody? Right, 137, because he was 10 years older than her. Does, can anybody figure out how old this means that Isaac was? Right, 37. Very good. Now, even though she had been 90 years old when her son was born... I didn't want to give you the answers first. (laughs) Even though she was 90 when Isaac was born, yet the Lord privileged Sarah with a good long life so that she was able to see her son, her one and only son, live well into manhood because there he was just three years short of 40 when she died. Now, since Sarah was 65 years old, when her husband Abraham was first called by God to leave their home, in Ur of the Chaldees, this means that she had lived 62 years on the path of faith, side by side with her husband. Now, we don't know how many years Sarah had been married to Abraham before his call from God, because we're not told that, but it could well be that the couple actually spent a century, as much as a century together, maybe even more than a century together as husband and wife. Figure that one out. True. They could have had their centennial anniversary. (laughs) And since they also shared the same father, they had different mothers, but they shared the same father, this probably also means that they knew each other their whole lives. Well, yeah, Abraham knew Sarah at least by the, you know, since he was 10 years old, and she probably knew him her entire life. So that's a long relationship, isn't it? Now, it's interesting to notice also that Sarah is the only woman in all of the Bible to have her age revealed. Think about that one. You say, really? The only woman in... So, you know, those of you that hate to put down your age when we ask you how old, there is a biblical um, (laughs) precedence for this. (laughs) Not many women are given their... have their age revealed in the Bible. Sarah really is the only one. Now you say, well, what about Jairus' daughter? She was 12 years old. Well, she wasn't a woman. Children don't have a problem with you, you know, they love to tell you how old they are. She was only 12. And then somebody who's really smart might say, well, what about Anna, the prophetess? Ah, yes, we were told that she was a widow for 84 years, but we weren't told her age. So Sarah is unique. She, she uniquely stands as the only woman to have her age revealed in all of the Bible. Now, probably the reason that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to include Sarah's ages, both at the time that she gave birth to Isaac, she was 90 years old, and now again at the time of her death, was so that those ages would serve as further testimony of both her faith 
in God and God's promises. You know, it takes a lot of faith to believe that at 90 years old you're going to have a child. And also um, to give a testimony of the power of God because not only did he give her a a barren woman, a postmenopausal woman, a child, but then he rejuvenated her body so much that she even lived another 37 years. I think another reason that we were given the age of Sarah here at the time of her death only woman in the Bible to have her age revealed at the time of her death, is because I think this gives us a hint that Isaac was in his 30s during the Mount Moriah incident in chapter 22. And I think that's important for us to understand that he was a full-grown man and willingly went to be a sacrifice rather than just a little boy. And we talked about that in our last couple lessons. So that, in other words, also so that he would be a more perfect picture in type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Sarah stands unique in the Bible for uh, the fact that she's the only one to have her age revealed. And also for some other reasons. We find that she and Rahab are the only two uh, women mentioned by name in that famous Hall of Faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. And that chapter, you know, records a list of past saints who demonstrated extraordinary faith. Sarah was not only chosen to become the matriarch of the nation of Israel, but she had the great honor of being in the direct lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me to think about the fact that we are never in the Bible told even once to look to the mother of Christ, to Mary, as an example of a godly woman. And yet, indeed, we know that Mary was a very godly woman. But we're never told to look to her as her example, our example. And yet, on two occasions, we are told to look to who? To Sarah. We're told to look to Sarah as a godly example of womanhood in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, and then again in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 to 6. And then she and Rahab are the only two women mentioned by name in Hebrews chapter 11. So this is a special woman that we are giving a tribute to here. Well, after our study of the last 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, ever since chapter 12, we have certainly seen that Sarah was not perfect. Right? She wasn't perfect. She had made several major mistakes. I mean, she had agreed to conspire with her husband about their relationship, you know, being brother and sister and and concealing the fact that they were husband and wife. They did that on two occasions, both before Pharaoh in Egypt and also before Abimelech in the uh, land of the Philistines. And she had also then wrongly, very wrongly, persuaded Abraham to bear a son with Hagar, her Egyptian handmaid. That was probably her biggest flaw. And then what did she do? After Hagar got pregnant, she mistreated Hagar. And then she laughed in unbelief when she um, heard about, her for the first time, heard the divine announcement about her conception of Isaac. And she heard that when she was 89 years old, and she laughed. And then what did she do? She covered her uh, laughter with a lie. She said that she didn't actually laugh and the Lord of course knew that she had yet for a woman who lived to be 127 years old 
those offenses were not very numerous, right? Just a handful of things. And we could even really say that several of those were, were more Abraham's responsibility than they were hers. So her virtues and her faith far outshined her faults. Think about what Sarah went through. I mean, she left her home in Ur. She left everybody that she had known except for her husband. She left her, uh, all her friends and her family. She left her father's house in order to step out in obedient faith with her husband to her husband's call. It was probably easier for Abraham than for her because he got the call direct. She had to just trust him that he got the call from the Lord. And she didn't, I mean, she came from an idol-worshiping family. Remember that? So that took a lot of faith to believe in, in a God that she really didn't grow up knowing. Yet she believed God's promises, and, and she went forth, left everything. She went forth with Abraham, and she stayed with Abraham despite many hardships and trials. And despite the times that he had attempted to protect himself at her expense, you know, she was carried off to become part of a harem on two different occasions. And she had not complained, as far as we know. There's no record of her complaining about living as nomads in tents all of their lives together and never, you know, putting down any permanent roots. She had supported her husband all along, except in the one occasion, uh, which uh, one, the one thing that he would not have done, but that he needed to do. And without her uh, wisdom in this matter and God's support of what she told him to do, Abraham probably would not have done this. And that was, of course, to expel Hagar and Ishmael, the son of the flesh. You see, Sarah had understood that the line of, the pro of promised salvation was to be in Isaac alone, and therefore Ishmael had to be totally out of the picture. And then after her um, initial laughter, when she didn't really believe God's promise to her that she would bear a son, even from her, her dead body and Abraham's body, she did, after that initial laughter, she did come to faith. She did come to believe that this would happen. And so she is commended very highly for her faith as well as for her respect of her husband. How did she refer to Abraham? Right, as her Lord, with a small L, of course. So her faith, her life, her submissiveness, her beauty of spirit, her faithfulness, and her focus on her eternal home are some of the reasons why I think we are told to look to Sarah as our godly example of womanhood. And remember what Sarah means? God had changed her name from Sarai to Sarah. What does Sarah mean in Hebrew? Princess. I don't know what you said. I couldn't hear you. It meant princess. And she truly was a princess of a woman. And as I mentioned, she wasn't perfect. And God did note her failures. But he also noted her faith. So I think that her life really teaches us that our faith, and this is good news, our faith can overcome our failures. In fact, that really is what salvation is all about, isn't it? 
even though we are total failures at being able on our own to obtain righteousness in God's eyes, you know, to, to, to be good enough in whatever we do, our good works, so that we get accepted in God's eyes. If we simply place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross on our behalf, then our faith saves us. No matter about all those failures, he overcomes them. He makes, he makes us righteous before God and overcomes all of our failures. So our faith can overcome our failures. So even though none of us are perfect, it's good to know that God does look at our faith and not so much as our, at our failures. Well, Genesis 23, verse 2 states that Sarah died where? She died in, you don't worry about that name that starts with a K, but really it's just another name for Hebron. She died in Hebron. It was in Hebron, remember, that they had gone to live after Lot had chosen to dwell in the plain of Jordan near the um, city of Sodom. When they parted ways with Lot, they went to live in Hebron. And it was also in Hebron that the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, along with two holy angels, visited Abraham and brought him word of the promised birth of Isaac within a year's time and that Isaac would actually be born from Sarah. And it was, therefore, in Hebron that both Abraham and Sarah had laughed. Remember, there was a difference, however, in their laughter. Abraham laughed in worshipful joy at that announcement, whereas Sarah had laughed in disbelief. But now we find out that the place of laughter became a place of tears because Sarah died in Hebron. And years later, we'll find out that Isaac also died in Hebron. Now, we have learned that Abraham and Sarah had left Hebron shortly after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they had gone to live where? They left there and they went down to live in Gerar, which was in the land of the uh, Philistines. It was uh, still part of Canaan. They were Canaanites, but the Philistines lived there and their king was named Abimelech, remember? Well, following then... Abraham's very difficult but victorious journey up to Mount Moriah, from Gerar to Mount Moriah, where he had gone and passed the fiery test by willing his willing obedience to God's command to offer up Isaac. After that journey, he had moved his family. We were told in Genesis 22:19, he had moved them down to Beersheba. But now we find out that they apparently didn't live in Beersheba very long before they moved to Hebron because Sarah died in Hebron. And we believe that this was only a few years following the Mount Moriah episode of Genesis 22. So at any rate, you can see they moved around a lot during their lives. Although Sarah lived a long and a full life, she never did have a permanent place of residence. She didn't have just one address. But this didn't really upset her. Again, we don't see her complaining in the scripture because like Abraham, she knew that she was merely a stranger and a sojourner. Look at verse 4. That's what Abraham will confess in a few minutes. We'll look at that. She knew she was a stranger and a sojourner in this world and that her true citizenship was where? Was in heaven. 
It did not matter where she was when she died. What did matter is where she went when she died. Same thing is true with us, right? doesn't matter where you are when you die. What matters is where you go when you die. We might not be able to control where we die or what we die from or how we die or when we die. But there is one thing we do have the ability to determine, and that is where we go when we die. The choice of heaven or hell rests entirely with us. Well, not entirely. I mean, you know, you can get into that big debate about God's sovereignty and man's free will. But from our perspective, it does it does rest in us. And what we decide to do or don't decide to do with Jesus Christ. Because if you don't decide to put your faith in him, you've already decided. Because we already stand condemned. We're born in sin. It tells us about that in John 3.18. So that's what's vitally important, right, is what you decide to do with Jesus Christ. Is he Lord or is he not Lord? He is Lord, but you have to decide and then invite him into your life to be your Lord. Okay, let's look at the tears of Abraham. We've discussed a tribute to Sarah. Moving on, we'll look at the tears of Abraham in the latter part of verse 2. Where it says, And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. The mourning of Abraham refers here to the outward demonstration of his sadness, of his grief, which is generally less restrained among the peoples of the East than it is here in our Western culture. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a funeral um, of someone that's from the East. I know growing up as an Eastern Orthodox, and especially I remember my grandfather's funeral, was they have a, a great display of out, an outward demonstration of their grief, um, a lot of wailing, and um, even sometimes renting of the clothes and beating of one, one's breast. There's a lot of that displayed, as opposed to our Western culture. You know, we just basically keep rather quiet during funerals, but they don't. <laughs> so here the word mourning in the Hebrew, it actually speaks of the beating of one's breast as an outward display of grief. And uh, it was, as it was, as it still is today among many Eastern cultures, uh, part of the funeral process for wailing. You know, remember we learned in our study of the life of Christ that they would even hire those that would come in and do the wailing. So it's common for wailing to be a further demonstration of grief. So Abraham was doing this. He was, he was perhaps wailing and beating his breast. Uh, maybe he even tore his clothes. I don't know. And then, the word, then it speaks of his weeping. And the word weep, also used to describe his grief over Sarah's death, that denotes the inward sorrow of his heart. It speaks really mostly of his tears, of course. And actually, the, the Hebrew word which is used for weep refers to a flow of tears. So his grief was not just an outward display of beating his breast or wailing, but it was a, a sincere, deep matter of his heart. His tears were really, really flowing. 
and he was not alone in his sorrow. Although he's the only one mentioned here in this chapter, we learn in the next chapter, verse 67, that Isaac also was deeply affected by the loss of his mother, as you can well imagine. But for the remainder of this chapter, our focus is on Abraham and how he coped with the death of his loved one. The first thing that he did as I just discussed, is that he mourned and he wept over the loss of his lifetime partner. And there is absolutely nothing at all wrong with mourning over the death of a loved one or a spouse or a friend. There's nothing wrong with shedding tears at the time of death. Mourning and tears are not indications that a person has a weak faith. They don't, as some would have us to believe, I mean, some people out there would actually say that it, it betrays a lack of faith in the will of God or uh, the sovereign will of God. And yet, if there was ever a man who was surrendered to the sovereignty of God and uh, submissive to the will of God, it was Abraham, right? And yet he mourned. And he wept over the death of his dear wife. I'm sure, you know, he understood that this was God's will, and he was submissive to that. He didn't have a problem with that, but that doesn't mean, of course, that he wasn't deeply moved and grieved over losing her. He'd known her since he was 10 years old. I should have had that up there. Uh, And we have an example even in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he not weep? Jesus wept outside the the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, even knowing, he he wept even knowing that in just a few minutes he was going to raise him from the dead, and yet he wept. He wept because of sin and the consequences of sin, and he wept because he knew how much sorrow, sin, and death would bring into the world or had already brought into the world and and would in the future. He wept because I think with his omniscient eyes he could see everybody at every tombstone, every graveside, I should say, weeping. And it brought tears to his eyes, even knowing that he was going to raise him soon from the death, from the dead. So weeping is a natural, God-given means of expressing grief. Tears really are a release for the pain. They are a help to heal the broken hearts. They also show love and esteem and respect and concern for the the lost loved one. They are a testimony or a tribute to the importance of the deceased in the sorrower's life. So Abraham's grief for Sarah showed his love for her. It showed his respect for her and his affection for her. It was a sincere sorrow. However, as we will see also by way of his example during his funeral test, the way a a believer copes with the death of a loved one does serve as a testimony of his faith in God and in God's promises regarding salvation and regarding heaven. So, it's important that the the griever does not become overwhelmed by his grief. And so in the next verses, 3 to 9, 
um, we're going to look at his testimony before others at the time of his greatest loss, the loss of his wife. And by the way, this is the one and only time in the Bible that we do read of Abraham weeping. This is the only time we hear of him crying. All right, let's look now at the testimony of Abraham, verses 3 to 9. It says in verse 3, And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my lord. Thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he hath, which is in the end of his field. For as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place amongst you. There are two basic truths to learn from Abraham in order to pass the funeral test, when that test comes into our own lives. First of all, we learn that expressing sorrow and grief is natural, and it does not, does not display a weakness of the Christian faith in our lives. Secondly, the believer is not to be overwhelmed by his grief. And this, again, is what we see by Abraham's example. The believer is still to act responsibly and to get on with his life. He isn't just to, or she is not just to crumble and close up into a little cocoon somewhere and hibernate and get away from the world. He or she is still to be responsible with the rest of their life. So after grieving over the death of his life's partner, we're told that Abraham did what? He, he stood up from before his dead, and he walked away. And at 37 years of age, he even walked away on his own. What does that tell us? It tells us that he did not permit himself to become so overcome by his sorrow and his loss that he was overwhelmed and unable to function. Did I say 37? He was 137. At 137, that's even a lot to say that he stood up, (laughs) much less walked away on his own. It has been said that tears are like rain. Some rain is good, but too much brings what? Destructive floods. In dealing with the death of his precious wife, Abraham was not crushed. He was not defeated. He was not destroyed or demoralized or bewildered or confused or devastated. And he wasn't angry with God. Of course, the pain of his loss was very deeply felt in his heart, and he would probably still cry himself to sleep on many, many days and nights ahead. But he understood, you see, he understood his responsibility to get on with the affairs which needed to be handled. He understood that death is the surest thing about life. 
I mean, the minute you're born, you're on the process, you begin the process of dying. It is the surest thing about life. And he understood that it is the result of sin. Yet he also understood God's promise to send a Savior. You know, that promised seed of the woman. Back to Genesis 3.15. Who would defeat man's worst enemy, which is death, for all who would believe on him. He also understood that Sarah had placed her faith in the future Redeemer, who would enter into the world through the descendants of their very own son Isaac. And he knew that it was merely Sarah's body which lay before him, but that her soul was still alive and would one day even be reunited with her new resurrected glorified body. He also understood that he was an old man and that he would not live a whole lot longer and that therefore their separation was only temporary and that soon they would again be together and then they would never be separated. So he had a hope, you see, for a far better life and world ahead of him, a hope which his pagan neighbors, the sons of Heth, did not have. And therefore, he understood how important it was for him to be a testimony before those unbelieving neighbors who would very closely be watching him during his time of sorrow. They would want to see if his faith in his God made him any different at a time such as this, at the time of death. So Abraham ceased from his weeping and his mourning, and he stood up, and then he went out to speak to the Canaanites regarding his responsibility to bury his wife. Now, Dr. John Butler, in his commentary on Abraham, says this. He says, quote, Scripture shows us, in the illustration of some great lives, that the best way to end our tears is to address ourselves to our duty. Sorrow, discouragement, and distress can best be handled by getting busy with our responsibilities. If we lay around lamenting all the time, we will increase our grief. That is true. That's very true. Getting busy with our duties demonstrates our faith in God to strengthen us and to give us the grace that we need to carry on. Always despairing and putting off doing things insults God and indicates that he is not strong enough in a time of sorrow to help us do what needs to be done. End of quote. I thought those were wise words worthy of repeating. So Abraham needed a sepulcher. He needed a burying place for Sarah. And his action and his conduct in obtaining one really was a fantastic testimony of his faith. And this is why I believe there is almost an entire chapter dedicated to this particular event. He went before his neighbors, who are called the sons of Heth. You can read about Heth over in the Table of Nations chapter, chapter 10, verse 15. They were the Hittites. The sons of Heth became the Hittites, 
who descended from, or hath descended from Canaan, actually. So they are all Canaanites because they all lived in the land of Canaan. But these were specifically the Hittites. He went before them and he began his request for a burying place for Sarah with a monumental statement of faith. He told the people of Hebron, Hebron that he was a stranger and a sojourner. Now, although, you know, you just read those words on the surface, you say, well, that doesn't seem to be a monumental statement of faith. What's so significant about that? Well, it is very significant because he was actually here confessing before his pagan neighbors his faith. He was confessing that he owned no land whatsoever in Canaan. He was merely a foreigner passing through. He was not staying around long enough to have bothered settling down and purchasing land or making himself a permanent residence. You see, he was really saying that his permanent home was elsewhere. And this is why he had only bothered to live in tents down here on earth and why he had moved from place to place. His hopes and his focus were on heaven. He set his affection on those things which were above and not on those things which are here on this earth, as it says in Colossians 3.2. Now, how do we know that Abraham meant this by his confession to the uh, Hethites or the Hittites? Well, we know it because the Bible tells us. The author of Hebrews wrote that those who confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth, and who was the first one to make that confession? Right here, Abraham. Hebrews says that those who confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims, are we strangers and pilgrims passing through? Yes, and we need to confess that. We need to, to let the world know that that we know we're not here permanently. Anyway, they go, he goes on to say, whoever the author of Hebrews was, says that they declare plainly that they seek a country, a better country, that is, an heavenly. They seek a heavenly country. That's in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. Also in that chapter of Hebrews, we are told specifically of Abraham that, quote, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, meaning tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, which builder and maker is God. Where was his focus? His focus was not on this world. His focus was on heaven. If the believer is to have a strong testimony of faith in God and in his promises before the unbelieving world, then he must evidence to them that his primary concern and his primary focus are on heaven and on eternal matters and not on earthly things. The believer is to see beyond the interests and the in investments and the concerns of this life alone. Now, that doesn't mean we're supposed to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good, but our primary focus is to be on that which is above because the things of this world only laugh, last for but a brief moment, and they are gone. One day, everything here except the Word of God and souls will be burned up and destroyed, so don't get too attached to anything except souls and the word of God. But things in heaven will last how long? 
forever and ever and ever. So Abraham began his request for a burial site for Sarah with a statement which made it clear to his listeners that he believed in a permanent home elsewhere. Although he desired to secure a burying place where he could put his deceased one from his site, yet he made it clear that his first concern was really for the souls, souls of Well, he knew the soul of his wife was secure and safe because he knew where she had placed her faith. But he was also concerned, of course, for the souls of his neighbors who were not safe and they were not secure because they did not know God. And therefore, they did not have heaven as their future home. They had hell for their future home. So he was showing that he was more concerned with the soul than he was for the body, just as he was more concerned with heavenly matters than he was with earthly ones. Yet he had the responsibility, you see, of making funeral arrangements. And those arrangements began with his need to put away his deceased wife's earthly body. Now, again, I want to quote from John Butler because he wrote some words of of wisdom on the subject of burial. We're putting one from one's, you know, putting the deceased one from our sight. All right, he says, quote, Putting the dead loved one out of sight does not instruct us that when a person dies, we should put everything out of sight that would in any way remind us of them and thereby cause us grief. But it does instruct us to avoid the habit of some who must keep every memento of the deceased in plain sight and will not change a thing in their living quarters in order, to, in order that the dead one will be constantly brought before their minds. Such action prolongs grief and promotes emotional stress, which makes a person morbid in attitude and action and depressing to be around. And some people do that, don't they? They don't want to change one little thing in someone's bedroom or closet. And that is not healthy. That's not healthy. Well, following his request for a burying place for Sarah, the Hittites, the children of Heth, responded by giving Abraham a great compliment. Actually, they give him a double compliment. First of all, they compliment him by referring to him as a mighty prince among us, which is really more striking than what it says in the English. They literally said here that he was a prince of God. They, they, this complimented Abraham because it told him that they had observed his life. Now, even though he didn't live there for many years, This time, he had lived in Hebron years earlier for quite a while, for quite a long time, earlier in his life. So they had been watching him, observing his life, his character, and his day-to-day dealings with people, and they had noted that he was indeed a prince of a man. But even more than that, they had noticed his faith in his God and how his God had blessed and even prospered him. So although they might not have accepted his God in their own lives, they did hold him, Abraham, in high esteem. And they knew that he had a a princely relationship with his God. Now the second way in which the Hittites complimented Abraham 
was in their generous offer of a burial site. They told him that they would not take advantage of him in his time of grief by selling him a sepulcher in order to bury his wife in. In fact, they told him that they would give him the choicest of all of their tombs, their sepulchers. That's in verse 6. So offering him the choicest of their burying places was a great compliment, as was the title that they gave to him. They were, in other words, not ashamed to have him bury his loved one in their tombs with their people, nor were they unwilling to assist him. They held him in a place of high honor, and they were most willing to be of assistance to him in his time of need. And, you know, this is often the way it is in the world, uh, even, you know, even in the unbelieving world out there, if a person, a believer, lives a life of integrity and has, you know, good worth, work ethics and high morals and is kind and is dependable, even the unbelieving world will oftentimes bend over backwards to be kind to that person and to notice that they do have a... Uh, a, a special relationship with their God, even if they have not accepted that God. So what we notice next here now about Abraham is his great courtesy. This is all part of his testimony. Greatly um, has great courtesy and wonderful conduct, even at a time of grief. Verse 7 tells us that he stood up and he bowed himself to the people of the land. He demonstrated his humble respect and his gracious appreciation of their title of honor for him and also for their, their offer to help. And then he spoke of a particular piece of uh, land, or really a cave. It's called the Cave of Machpelah, uh, which happened to be located at the end of a field belonging to a man named Ephron. He apparently had seen that cave and, and, and desired it to bury Sarah. So he asked the city officials who sat at the gate of Hebron if they would intercede on his behalf so that he might secure that cave for his wife's burial chamber. And then he announced that he would pay as much money as it was worth, and that means that he would pay the full price for that cave. Now, Abraham here is teaching us to bear a strong testimony in all funeral arrangements and before all people, even during the time of our worst grief and sorrow, when we might be able to get away with excusing our behavior. You know, that would be one time we'd say, well, I have a right to, to be ugly, <laughs> be short-tempered, and to be self-centered because of what I am personally going through. But we can't use that excuse. We're even to have a wonderful, great testimony at the in the time of our greatest sorrow. A time of grief is really when our graciousness might uh, shine forth all the more as a testimony for Christ. That we sorrow, yes, but not as those who have no hope. There's to be a difference in us. And the funeral people are to see that difference in us. And remember, too, that we are commanded in the scripture, in 1 Peter 3.8, to be courteous. It says, be courteous. And there are no exceptions given to that command. 
So does that mean that we are to be courteous even if we are getting ripped off for the price of a casket? <laughs> yes. We're going to see that Abraham gets ripped off big time by Ephron. Does that mean we are to be courteous if uh, we get ripped off for paying too much for a burial plot? Yes. Does it mean we are to be courteous even when we stand in a long line at Walmart? <laughs> yes. So in, in verses 10 to 20, we come to the actual business, bless you, actual business transaction action which was made between Abraham and a very selfish man. And we're going to note how Abraham did indeed pass with flying colors the funeral test and managed to maintain a strong testimony for the Lord by his very fair and just and extremely courteous business dealings with this greedy man. So let's look at the transaction with Ephron, verses 10 to 20. It says, And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, All right, here's Ephron speaking. Nay, my lord, hear me. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein I give it thee. In the presence of the sons of my people give I it thee. Bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land. And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me. I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron, and Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth four hundred shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. And the field of Ephron which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about were made sure unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. I want us to make really sure here that he did obtain that particular field and cave it was his the only thing he ever possessed in the land of Canaan well when the owner of the cave of Machpelah became involved Abraham found that he had to deal with a very selfish and a crafty man now you might not see this when you just read through the chapter you probably say oh, well it sounded like a nice guy to me no problem <laughs> yet we find that Abraham he but he was crafty you'll find out uh, but Abraham himself did not become like the man. He did not become crafty as well. He could have, but instead he maintained a consistent testimony of integrity and courtesy throughout this whole business arrangement here. Neither did he go back on his promise to pay the full price for the burying place. 
However, before we discuss and look at the dialogue between Ephron and Abraham, what we really need to do, first of all, is take a little look at the common way in which business transactions in Abraham's day took place. Actually, a lot of these customs, if you go to the Middle East or even to the Far East, a lot of these customs are still observed today. A seller someone who was trying to sell his goods. In this case, it would be Ephron. A seller would open a trading transaction by assuring his potential buyer that all that he he possessed was his. Everything I have is yours, the buyer's, okay? He would very courteously offer the potential buyer to simply take, just take, take whatever you want, And that's precisely what we see Ephron did when he and Abraham were brought together before the leaders of Hebron at the gate of the city. He seems very gracious because he says to Abraham, Nay, my Lord, hear me, the field give I... Notice how many times he says give. The field give I thee, and the cave that is therein, I give thee. In the presence of the sons of my people, give I it thee. Bury your dead. Now, if Abraham at this point had merely said, well, thank you, sir, very much, that's very nice of you, and had taken the the cave and the land, it would have been a terrible breach of custom and Eastern courtesy, and everyone would have been abhorred by such outrage because it was understood by everyone there that Ephron's words merely meant that he was willing to sell. That's all it meant. He was willing to sell. He did not at all mean to give anything away. Furthermore, we notice his craftiness come into play by the fact that he did not merely offer the cave. That's all that Abraham really wanted. He merely wanted the cave of Machpelah to bury Sarah in. But notice how Ephron mentions the field as well. Now, according to Abraham's statement in verse 9, where was the cave located? Right at the back, we could say. It was at the end of Abraham's, I mean, of Ephron's field. So possession of that entire field was not something that Abraham was interested in. He didn't want the whole field. Yet Ephron knew that he had Abraham at a disadvantage here. He knew that Abraham had to obtain a burying place quickly and that he didn't have a lot of time because of the bodily decay process. So he knew Abraham didn't have a whole lot of time to go around searching for other caves. He also knew that Abraham was rich. And he knew that Abraham had already made an offer to pay the full price. He also knew that Abraham had specifically mentioned his cave, the cave of Machpelah. So Ephron was really telling Abraham that if he wanted that cave, he would have to buy the land also. That's what he was telling him. Now, then continuing with the Eastern custom of business dealings, it was then Abraham's turn as the the buyer to respond to Ephron's offer. 
Now, the proper thing for the potential buyer to do was to humbly and generously protest against the great kindness offered by the seller. It's all kind of a game, but this is what they do. So Abraham began his response to Ephron by politely bowing down, verse 12, before he then said to him, thank you. In effect, this is what he said. Thank you for your offer to give me your cave and your field, but I will pay you for the cave and, yes, the field where I can bury my dead. That's, in effect, the way he responded, but he did it very kindly and graciously and humbly. Then the next phase in Eastern Business Matters was for the seller to name his price which he would do in sort of an offhand manner in order to make it appear that, no, oh, the price is nothing to me, doesn't matter. And that's uh, generally the, pra- the first price he would mention would just be outrageous. <laughs> it would be so high. And this is definitely the situation that we find here. In Ephron's price of how much? 400 shekels of silver which he tried to play down by saying, that's why I picked this picture, because he's shrugging his shoulders. He, he tried to play it off by saying, but what is that betwixt you and me? It's mere pittance. It's nothing. <laughs> he was trying to insinuate that the price was nothing to him and that it was fine with him if Abraham just forgot how valuable the land and the cave was and went ahead and oh, just bury your dead. Can't you picture them just doing all this? <laughs> However, this again was far from the reality of what was going on in his mind, in Ephron's greedy little mind. He was like those who are condemned in Proverbs 20:14, who make light of their unfair profits by saying, and this is right from that proverb. Did I say Proverbs or Psalms? Proverbs 20:14. They say, it is not, it is not. It's, it's nothing, it's nothing. But when the one they have cheated has gone away, then they boast and brag about their profit and their gain. Ephron, you see, made it sound like the price of 400 shekels of silver was nothing to him. But when the money was his, what would he do? He would go around bragging and boasting about how he had outsmarted Abraham. But Abraham was no fool. He wasn't outsmarted here. He certainly knew the customs of his day all too well. How old was he? 137 years. And he, in all those years, he had been dealing in the markets with Ephron-type men, not only the markets of Ur, of the Chaldees. Remember, he didn't leave Ur until he was 75 years old, um, selling his cattle and his sheep there. And then he sold them in Haran, where he had gone to live for a while with his father. And then he had done the same in Egypt. Then he had gone and, and lived in Hebron and did tra- done trading with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and those other cities of the plain. Then he went down and had to deal with the Philistines in Gerar. And all throughout Canaan, he had been selling and dealing in the marketplaces with his cattle and sheep. So he knew very well how to deal with a man like Ephron. He knew that he could keep bartering with the man. And that eventually, with a lot of arguing and bickering and a lot of disregard for time, he could get Ephron down to a reasonable price and strike a bargain. But he was not tempted to behave the way the world around him behaved. 
He refused to wheel and deal in order to get the price down. He was a man of his word. And he'd already said what? That he would offer a full price, a fair price, even though this wasn't very fair. And he would keep his word to pay what was asked. And so with consistent courtesy, although he would seemingly have every right to be angry for having been taken advantage of at his time of great grief, yet he weighed out the full price of 400 shekels of silver to Ephron. He willingly paid an exorbitant price, which was about 20 times the value of the land. About 20 times what it was worth. And remember, he hadn't even wanted the field. He didn't even want the land. He merely wanted the cave at the end of the field. And so he, he probably actually paid about 40 times or more what the actual cave was worth. But he kept his word, and he also made sure that he was in debt to no man. And the business transaction was witnessed by everyone present, all the leaders of, of the city, so there could be no later dispute about the amount that had been paid. There were plenty of witnesses. There could be no f further dispute about the boundaries of the field or the location of the cave or, or whatever. And neither could Ephron... Uh, later on be able to go around and criticize Abraham for having bartered him down in price. Nor could he complain that he had not gotten the full value of his property. So you see, Abraham maintained a fantastic testimony throughout, throughout this funeral test, didn't he? Even though it was a very unfair price, he never complained. He just courteously and humbly and quietly paid the full amount. And in doing so, he testified, again, that he was not living for this earth and for its money. He had a far higher calling, which was to be a witness for his God and to live for him and to live for the things of eternity. His focus, as we talked about earlier, was on the promised land of heaven, and it is worth any price at all, isn't it? I hope you can say yes to that. It's worth anything and everything we have to get to the promised land of heaven. It says in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on the things above, not on things on the earth. End of quote. So Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre. In future years, I've actually been to this uh, place in, over there in Israel, in Hebron, and, and you look down on it. You remember seeing that, Betsy Ann? You don't? Anyway, you look down on it, and, you, and they're buried down in there the way they have it set up now. But uh, many years later, this would, be the same, this would become the family cemetery. And this was where uh, Abraham was also buried, where he apparently requested that Isaac and Ishmael bury him. And it was also where Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, were buried. And later on, it was where Jacob and his first wife, Leah, are buried. Purchasing the burial place for Sarah was done not only so as to have a place to put her body, because he could have easily buried her 
many places where no one would even have known. I mean, a lot of times they just bury their loved ones out in the, in the sand somewhere. And no one would have known, and he wouldn't have had to bother with all of these funeral arrangements. Or, you know what he could have done? He could have accepted one of the genuine free offers from one of those kind Hittites and, and buried her in one of their sepulchers. Yet he had also, you see, purchased the Machpelah cave to testify of his faith in God's promise concerning the possession of the land of Canaan by his future descendants. He planned for that cave to become his family burial place. And as I said, he must have specifically requested that he be buried there also with Sarah. So in purchasing that one piece of real estate, he was really investing in God's promises concerning the future. Even though that was the only piece of land he ever owned in Canaan, he knew and believed that God had said, I will give this land to your descendants. And he was showing his faith in that promise, even though he never really saw it. But his hope went much further than just the land of Canaan, didn't it? As we've been talking about all morning. He knew that he was merely a stranger and a sojourner or a pilgrim in this world. He knew that his true home was not on this earth, but that he awaited a much better, far better home in heaven. And because of the truth of heaven and salvation in Jesus Christ, you and I can also, as Abraham, go ahead and bury our loved ones in the Lord with a sure hope that this world does not have. Yes, indeed, there is a time to weep. And we all understand that, only all too well. But in the weeping, let us also try to remember to be a testimony of the reality of our faith to those who are watching us. And then we must remember that there is also a time to stop weeping and to get on with redeeming our remaining years wisely for who for the lord as christians we alone can uniquely experience joy even in the midst of our sorrow because we have the assurance of that heavenly citizenship so let's keep our focus on that which lies ahead okay and press toward it let's pray